The views and discussion expressed on this program do not necessarily represent those of the hosts of the program. WMKV, Maple Knoll Communities, WLHS, the Lakota Local School District, or staff and management. The information and advice presented are educational in nature and not intended to be taken as specific legal, accounting, or other professional advice. Always consult with your own legal, accounting, or other professional before making any investment. Welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing, a show to help you gain financial freedom by investing in real estate. Brought to you by the Real Estate Investors Association of Cincinnati and the Ohio Real Estate Investors Association. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing on WMKV, WLHS, and the Maple Knoll Radio Network. And now your host, Vena Jones-Cox. Good afternoon. I am Vena Jones-Cox, and this is Real Life Real Estate Investing, where you can't touch the microphone or it goes out here. Let me make sure it's in exactly the right position. All right. So no more touching the microphone. Anyway, it's Real Life Real Estate Investing, and it's question and answer week on Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's uh, what we most commonly do on the last Wednesday of the month. And uh, what that means is I don't have a topic planned out. Like, I got nothing to say unless you have questions. And the questions can be about anything related to real estate investing. It's um, it's all good, whether it's about management or uh, finding money or finding deals or wholesaling or renting or getting, getting into the business or getting out of the business or whatever you want to talk about. Uh, this is a good day to do that. The number here in the studio is 877-772-9658. The email, to, if, you, if you're sitting at work and you like don't want your boss to know you're thinking about real estate instead of your job, you could send an email to askvina at gmail.com. And once again, any question that you have is a wonderful question today. Uh, because it helps me fill up a, an hour-long show for which I have no topic. Those of you who are in the Greater Cincinnati area, the Real Estate Investors Association of Greater Cincinnati meets tomorrow evening for its first meeting of the month of March. Uh, it's a good topic. It's about how to avoid property landmines. Um, we've got a, an engineer, uh, the, the home inspector, coming in to talk about uh, common but hidden structural issues that... If you end up buying a property that has these, it it could you could just lose the whole property. Basically, it cost a fortune to fix some of these things, and he's got pictures and slides and descriptions and all of that sort of stuff. So, if you have even thought about buying an investment property, this would be a good meeting to come to. The early meeting is about uh, getting health insurance when you are self-employed. We've got a panel of health insurance providers there to talk about uh, different options for folks who don't get. Don't get insurance through their jobs. Uh, the meeting, at all, as always, starts at 5.30 with a free dinner. 6 o'clock is the early meeting with the health insurers. 7.30 is the main meeting uh, about property landmines. You can get more information and download a free first-time guest pass at CincinnatiRia.com. That's CincinnatiRia.com. If you are in the greater Cincinnati area and you're interested in investing in real estate, Cincinnati Area is making a free book available to uh, anyone who wants it. 
Uh, you can order yours by going to CincinnatiReInvestor.com. That's CincinnatiReInvestor.com. It's called How to Get Rich in Tri-State Real Estate, and it's a sort of a primer on things like how do people find deals when the market is hot? You know, how do folks in the Cincinnati area buy properties without banks? So it is a detailed beginner type book that anybody can have. You just got to go in there and say where you want it sent and uh, you'll get it. No charge. CincinnatiReInvestor.com. Question and answer week here on Real Life Real Estate Investing. And there are a handful of questions already here uh, waiting for me. Um, and one that's uh, coming up on the line here, but are we are ready, are we ready to take that call? Not quite, because I don't know where EE is. <laughs> it's from Cincinnati. Okay, so I'm gonna say I, I, I think I think he tried to type this out phonetically. So I'm gonna say it's Salome in Cincinnati. Salome. Salome. He came. He came. He, he really tried to do a job on the computer screen, like getting this, getting this, so I could pronounce it. Uh, so, what is your question, Salome? Um, so, I'm a newbie real estate investor, and um, at this point, I've been looking and looking and trying to run my numbers. Um, and um, I, I guess, I just need some help on maybe what I'm doing wrong and what uh, what assumptions I'm making that are incorrect. Because um, I'm looking at a deal right now, and I could also use some advice on if it makes uh, sense for a new person to get into, or if I'm looking at an area that's in over my head. Um, so I guess starting from um, like starting from the the deal I'm looking at right now, should I just describe like the location? Uh, well, first tell me, first tell me, what is your exit strategy? Um, so I guess I'm looking at buy and hold. So the long-term exit strategy would be to sell the property if it doesn't work out. Okay. So the, the shorter term, or the, 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 the ideal strategy is you want to buy it and hold it as a rental. Yes. But if that doesn't work, you're willing to buy it, rehab it, and resell it. Yes. Okay. So tell me, just, just tell me what part of town it's in. So this is in West Price Hill. Okay. Which, for those who are listening from outside the greater Cincinnati area, is a it, it ranges from border zone rental up through bread and butter, is 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 kind of the way West Price Hill uh, is. And is it a single family? Uh, it's a small multifamily, four units. Four unit multi. Okay. So, um, you you want me to just tell you what your problem is without you even telling me any more? <laughs> sure. <laughs> uh. Four units in that part of town sell for more money than makes sense. Oh, okay. I, I, I'm guessing. I'm guessing what happened is that you looked at the rents and the expenses and the mortgage payment you were going to have to make, and you were like, "Oh my gosh, this either isn't going to make any money at all, or the return is so small, I'm not sure why anyone would do it." Yeah. Well, actually, I mean, so the rents on the the place that they're saying are. Um, Four ninety-five per unit, and they're four one bedrooms, which I feel nervous about rents under five hundred, um, just because I'm not sure if that overall ends up bringing a return that's worth it. Um, but it looks like that, from the numbers at least, it looks like 
the rest of the expenses taxes are lower um and maybe i'm making too too uh liberal an assumption on on insurance costs and uh utilities and so that's probably why it looks better when i'm running my numbers than it actually is well no the reason it looks better than it actually is is because most people underestimate the operating expenses of a four family um my experience and i have i have evaluated hundreds of these okay so this isn't this isn't me just saying this is true for west price hill my experience is that with four families the operating expenses now this doesn't include the taxes uh, insurance, you know, the stuff that you can actually calculate, the mortgage payment, the actual operating expenses of just maintenance, vacancy, um, reserves run about 55% of the gross rents. So you kind of you got to start by cutting your rents in half and then seeing if you can pay the principal interest tax and insurance payments. Mm, fair enough. Okay. Yeah, four, four families have a, have a little bit of a... They have a little bit of an issue in that they are too small for professional management. Like you can't you can't put a, a resident manager in a four family. You can't the, the property can't afford it. But at the same time, they are small enough, and and because they are financed in the same way as single families are, they're attractive to a certain kind of investor who wants a bigger unit and who's willing to do. If you're if you'll do all the labor yourself on the maintenance and whatnot then yeah, you will you will show a profit at the end of the year but the problem is that means that you were going out and doing work that you could pay somebody else 15 or 20 dollars an hour to do shoot what okay. is what is what is the what is the asking price um 139 and is it is it um is it updated oh, sorry, or not sorry. 136.9 um I don't have pictures of the inside, so I was, one, I was just looking at the numbers to see if it makes sense to even look any further. Well, the rents being four ninety five a month, I'm going to say it's not updated. It's either it's either not yeah. it's either not updated or she's had the same tenants for a hundred years and hasn't raised the rent. Because I'm guessing that that four ninety five includes uh, includes utilities. Because on that side of town, most of those four families have a single boiler. Um, a single water bill and 495 a month even for a one bedroom that's updated and includes utilities is too low. Ah, fair enough. That's a good tip. But that probably means, I mean, that the, the good news is the rent should probably be 525. The bad news is you're probably going to have to update the kitchens and the baths. Okay. In order to get the rent up to that, so it's not you're not just looking at the sale price, you're looking at the sale price plus call it just as a rough estimate three to five thousand a unit to update them oh okay well yeah that just killed the deal then so well but here's the thing there's a reason it's called making a deal instead of just having a deal fall into your lap and that is you you know you're allowed to offer less than what they're asking right <laughs> yeah true because typically for if it's truly in West Price Hill and not in Covedale if it's in 45205 and not 452238 uh, typically i i can't see my way clear to pay more than about 80,000 for those four families over there and this is again based on based on the the income and the expenses not based on some you know i i lived in West Price Hill up until about a year ago so it's i don't have some prejudice against the neighborhood but usually I find that 80 turns out to be about the right price. 
and mm, you could okay. you could offer that i know it's scary right and they'll probably say no but what if they said yes yeah so you mentioned a couple zip codes this zip code is 45238 okay that uh, that changes things a little that is that is actually covedale and that oh. that means that the rent should be i know they 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 price hill annexed covedale about 5 years ago and just decided that covedale was now price hill don't don't even get anybody from Cogdale started on that one, but um, uh, it's it's a it's a slightly better neighborhood, and the rents might even be twenty five bucks more than what I said. Okay, so, so that would be five five fifty. They, they could be they could be five fifty for really updated one bedroom, including utilities. Yeah. Oh, including utilities. Okay. Well, because you have you have I, I I'm guessing this place just has one boiler, right? Um, I, yeah, I don't have that info yet. Okay. So, so one basic problem here is you don't have a lot of info. And I assume this is a listed property. Yeah. The agent will have all of this stuff. And the, and the right, the right questions to ask about any small multifamily are who pays the utilities? When were the kitchens and baths last updated? Is there parking? That's another that's another issue with these things. Some of them have covered parking, like in a garage, and some of them just have lot parking. And if it has street parking, it's not worth as much. So, you know, these are these are all questions that you will just learn to ask. But if you hang up the phone and call the agent and say what utilities are included, with the, who who pays the utilities, and how long has it been since the rents were raised? And how long has it been since the kitchen and bath were updated? That'll tell you like a whole lot about what you need to know. But I'm thinking 137, 136.9 is is going to be more than you want to pay if you want a really nice rate of return. Okay, fair enough. But I could I could potentially look at my analysis as like worst case scenario, what I would um, get now. Sorry, um, somebody else is calling me. Um, so I could think of it as my worst case scenario is the current rent, um, along with the cost of doing an update at like five grand a unit for kitchens and baths, um, and then fifty percent of my gross rent towards um, all other expenses like capex and um, maintenance, but not including PITI. Mm-hmm. Um, and then if it meets my numbers, it's worth pursuing and adjust the, the offer price based on that. Mm-hmm. While you're talking to the okay. agent, ask her how motivated her seller is. Ah, she, may not an- she may not answer, but, and, and this is not a motivated price. This is like tippy top price for a four family in Covedale. It's not a motivated price, but who knows, there might be some story there. And do you belong to Cincinnati, Rhea? I do, yes. Good, because anybody who's bought four families could have answered all of those questions that I just answered. And that's a great kind of question. Hey, that's a great kind of question to bring up when you're standing in that giant room full of people and you don't know what to say, right? Just walk up to somebody and say, hey, who knows four families? And they'll send you to someone and you can have a whole conversation like this. Okay. <laughs> okay. So it sounds right. it sounds to me like this one like this one's a, a a bit overpriced unless the owner is really motivated and it's really updated. You're probably not going to be able to come anywhere near the price, but keep looking. Yeah, I mean, I guess 
I guess I could always offer and get surprised, right? You always <laughs> could offer and get surprised. That's right. But go look at it first. Don't 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 do anything based on these kind of numbers we're throwing out here, because you know, for all I know, the it's it's already completely updated, and you could raise the rents tomorrow. You know, if, if people are on leases, you can't do that. But you got you got to go take a look and get a better feel for the whole situation. Okay. Um, my other question was, um, it looks like it's there are tenants in all the units and they're month to month. So if for whatever reason, right, hypothetically, that it works out, um, I guess to do being a new newbie investor, and this might be a silly question, but do I just give people like a 30-day notice and be like, hey, I want to renovate these units, Um time to find a different place to live that's not that's not the way most people handle a situation like this they 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 buy the property and they let the people keep paying them rent and then when one moves out they renovate that unit and then and then they rent it for more money and then when the next one moves out they renovate that unit and rent it for more money that makes more sense (laughs) okay (laughs) all right Thank you. Thank, All right. thank you very much for your call. I'll see you at Cincinnati Rhea. And uh, we need to take a quick break. We'll be back right after this with more questions and answers here on Real Life Real Estate. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. It's question and answer week. You can call in with questions at 877-772-9658. That's an eight followed by four sevens and then a 2, and then a 9658. You can also send questions via email to askbina at gmail.com. We're going to go to line 2 and talk to Roger in Texas. Roger, are you there? Sounds like the line's open, but I don't hear Roger. Say it real loud, it's kind of far away. Roger. <laughs> I, can't, I can't scream loud enough for Roger in tech to be able to hear me in Texas. Uh, maybe he has his phone on mute or something. Uh, well, Roger, I'll tell you what, we can't hear you, so we're going to put you on hold and try again here. Um, all right, so a couple of questions that have come in via email at askvina at gmail.com. Uh, this one is from Todd, who I'm going to take it is in the Detroit area, because he mentions Wendy Patton, who's in the Detroit area. He says, I was recently taught by a real estate educator about subject two. He told me that as a rule of thumb, he likes to do them with 17 years to pay off because there's more of the payment going toward principal. Do you have a rule of thumb regarding this? My sense tells me it doesn't matter just how much equity there is and what the unpaid balance is compared to the ARV. I think what this educator was telling you, Todd, is that he likes to take over mortgages that have 17 years left. 17 years or less left to pay. And the reason he likes that, I am speculating, is that when you get to about 14 years left to pay, the bulk of your monthly payment is going toward principal payoff. And he's apparently made himself a little rule that he really likes to be taking over mortgages that are closer to having that majority principal payoff with the payment every month. Um, That's fine. I mean, I, I, I can't argue with his choices here, but there are a lot of other things that can be put down as a benefit of buying a property subject to that aren't just quick pay down. I mean, you know, would you take over a mortgage that had 29 years, 11 months left to run 
if you had $500 a month in positive cash flow? Because I would. I wouldn't be like, oh, well, it's going to take too long to pay it off. I, 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 I'd take that deal, right? Would you, would you buy one that had... Would you buy one subject to the existing loan that had 29 years, 11 months left to run, and the house was worth 180 and the mortgage was only 150 I would. So I think this is, a, this is a rule that he likes, but it doesn't have to be a rule you like. Uh, my general philosophy is it's got to have one of those three things. It's either got to have high cash flow, or it's got to have high equity, or it's got to have quick payoff. I mean, I would, I would take over a loan that only had 11 years left to run and had zero cash flow. Because in 11 years, it'll be paid off and it'll be all cash flow. So it's a good question. Uh, I think your guy just has his own specific uh, rule and that's cool for him. Uh, line two, we're going to try Roger in Texas again. Roger, welcome to Real Life Real Estate Investing. Yes, hi, this is Roger. Hi, Roger. You have the You have the patience of a saint. Oh, boy. my wife and I want to kick our wholesaling business up a big notch and I want to ask you a couple little questions okay other than direct mail how do you get sellers to call you in my personal experience direct mail is the most effective way um secondarily the the types of advertising that you do that are more out to the general public so things like car signs and websites are are an example of this shotgun style marketing um bus benches you know things where it's not that you know that there's a a motivated seller who's going to see it but enough people see it every day that some of them are bound to be motivated sellers right bandit signs are a typical example of that um bandit signs are of course illegal everywhere and yeah. every time I mention them on the show, some community activist calls me up and says, why do you do bandit signs? They litter our neighborhoods. And I say, I don't do bandit signs. That's not what I said. And I also do all of those uh, signs from uh, um, politicians in the fall, litter up your neighborhood. What is it about you guys? And I buy houses, bandit signs. Why are they worse than the dental insurance for $10 signs or the diabetic test strip signs? I've never quite gotten that. But I know people who are who do very well with bandit signs. They get a lot of calls. Um, we uh, recently, so because I don't I don't use bandit signs, but I do use signage that is like legal, like in my own yard or in. We just put a sign on the side of our building that said we buy houses, apartments, mobile homes, all that stuff. And somebody Hi. somebody actually stopped my partner today in the parking lot and said, is that your son? I want to sell my house. And he's on his way to look at a house right now. So (laughs) direct, direct mail, I got to say is number one with a bullet, but uh, shotgun marketing and particularly uh, well, well set up websites can be very effective as well. Now, okay, I, I need to, I need to get somebody on here to talk about what makes a good I buy houses website because, Roger, I have seen some horrible examples of of these websites where uh, people try to put put try to put both sides of their business on the same website. So, for instance, I, I'm 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 saying, okay, I want to sell my house in San Antonio, and I, co- I I find Roger's website, and along the top it says buy buy houses sell houses rent houses and that means that if you're a wholesaler you're advertising your deals on the same site 
right. as as you're trying to buy deals and it's just it's just too much websites are cheap you know like like it, it, remember when it used to cost like fifty dollars a month to register a domain name and now it's like five so right so so you can have multiple websites and if you're gonna do one just for your wholesaling business then you want to talk to just the people who have your wholesale properties you want to say I want the ugliest house you have. I want you never to do any work on it. If it smells bad, I'm thrilled. If there's rats, bring them on, right? You want you you want to talk you want to talk to the particular kind of seller who has the particular kind of deal. You you don't want to be like all cash any condition. No, not any condition. I want ugly. Okay. Right? So, if you're going to put yes. up if you're going to put up a website, don't try to serve everybody with it's the same much. site and and be really clear on look if if your house is on fire right now, get the fire put out, but then I'll buy it, right? But like like seriously, I'm looking for the ugliest houses you have. And then of course there's a lot to there's a lot to do with like search engine optimization and things like that. But there's virtual assistants who can do that for you now for almost no money. Right. Okay. Okay. I think there's some good ideas. And here's one more little thing. Um, with the help of a friend, I'm using TLO as a skip trace aid. Mm-hmm. to find owners. Mm-hmm. Do, yep. do you know anything about that one? Well, I know you're not supposed to be using TLO as a skip trace aid to find owners, but the, I assume this is your friend's subscription, not yours? Correct. Okay. So he's the one breaking the rule, not you. Just But but, but be aware, uh, most of those credit-based um, companies like that ask why, you are u- why the subscriber is using the... Uh, information and I'm trying to find someone who I want to do business with is not actually a reason that you're supposed to use it um, I I have uh, a tenant who skipped you know because a skip trace means like somebody skipped it doesn't mean it doesn't mean I can't find the owner of this house um, it is you know it's 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 effective it, it definitely works but I think your friend needs to be a little bit careful about at least what he's telling the company about how he's using okay. the information. Okay. 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 Well, thank you so much. All right. Glad to get your call, Roger. Glad you were so patient. Have a good one. <laughs> bye bye. Happy New Year. You too. All right. Uh, let's go to line one. Russell in Connecticut. Russell, welcome to Real Life Real Estate. Yeah. How are you? I'm, I'm, I, I was more commenting on on something you said before about it, what the order of things like if somebody buys something whether to keep the tenant keep the cash flow while they're while they're renovating yes and and I have a situation in which I'm renting a home office and my landlord basically said that he wants to renovate the inside of mine and wants me to move however it's uh it's fine pretty much and and he's renting he's been he's not been getting rent upstairs from two uh, two apartments above me. Isn't that interesting? Um, no, no, he and he and another co-owner. They're both in their late eighties. Yeah, my guess is something else might be going on there, Russell. I think that I think you're guessing the same thing. Yeah, that, that either they're thinking about selling or they have some use for it that they don't want to tell you about, or that they're going to change the purpose of the property or something of that nature. Um, yeah, it's because because. Come on, nobody in their right mind throws out a paying tenant if they can renovate right. around them. Exactly. <laughs> I mean, it, it doesn't, you know, it doesn't, up, upstairs there's been one unit that hasn't been rented in seven months. And they've had their son do, do everything 
It's just the, kind of the worst property management I could see, or maintenance. Do you want <laughs> what you, not to do? Do you want to? Do you want to own the building? Yeah, uh, sure. Why don't you if call I, the owner up and say I don't want to move, so why don't you sell to me? There you go. <laughs> I'm serious, and he's you know he's 80 yeah. and he's got a kid. That try and get owner financing, and when he says I'm 80, I don't buy green bananas. Say well, but you don't understand. When you pass away, your son will get this income until it's all paid off. And this way, right, you, this right. way, I you mean, have to do nothing. Just, just turn pres- it over presumably, me. presumably, the whole whatever was owed on it was all been long paid off anyway. Uh, yeah. So it go to his son and, and the other owner's daughter. Right, <laughs> right. So yeah. yeah, why don't you offer to buy the building and then you don't have to move? There you go. <laughs> <laughs> all right. Thank you for all right. Thank you for your call, Russell. Appreciate it. You're welcome. I guess that's about the best, best I can think, best I can do. (laughs) Probably. Yep. All right. All right. Thank you. Thank you. You're listening to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox. Today's question and answer week. And as you can see, the questions kind of can bounce all over the place. They can now, now, if you're calling me from Abilene, don't, don't expect me to say, oh, well, in that area of Abilene, four families rent for this much money. But, you know, I can, I can, I can generally answer basic questions about real estate in most markets. So any questions you have, give us a call at 877-772-9658 or email askvina at gmail.com. Welcome back to Real Life Real Estate Investing. I'm your host, Vina Jones-Cox, and it's question and answer week. And when I say ask anything, you guys take me super seriously because got a question here from Todd that I actually had to bring in an expert from outside of the room where he sits while I'm doing my radio show. Uh, This is Matt, a.k.a. the smart boy, a.k.a. my way-too-young-for-me boyfriend, a.k.a. the person I go to when there are weird questions about defaulted second mortgages, like Todd here asks. He says, Hi, Vina. There's a property being foreclosed at the sheriff's sale auction at the courthouse on Friday. It's near me, in good condition, and the opening bid price is less than half of the after-repaired value. I talked to the attorney handling it, and he tells me it's a second mortgage that's being foreclosed. The first is not in default as far as I know. If I bid this second mortgage and win it, what do I get and what happens to the first mortgage holder? I know the first is senior to others and would wipe out the other liens if that was being auctioned. My feeling tells me not to bid on this property. Well, Todd, you know, you know, don't don't just go on your feelings here. Let's find out what's actually happening because my guess is that what is happening here is that the second mortgage is foreclosing subject to the first mortgage, which is something that even I did not know was possible until four or five years ago. The second mortgagers in a lot of, or mortgagees, excuse me, in a lot of states can actually go ahead and foreclose around the first mortgage, meaning that what you would be, if you are correct in what's happening here, what you would be bidding on would be second position in this property. If you beat out the second mortgager, you would get the property, but you would get it subject to the first mortgage, which makes it very, very important that you find out something here, which is, is the first mortgage in default or not? You also need to know the terms of the first mortgage. You need to know, you will you will end up owning the house, but it will still have this first mortgage attached to it, is my point. Now, 
That I all knew for myself, but guessing again that you are from Michigan because of your comment about coming to Michigan Rhea later in the year. Uh, Matt here actually owns a defaulted second mortgage in Michigan and has some information about specific Michigan law in regards to these sorts of deals. Well, first, let me say that everything that Vina just said, of course, was exactly correct. And you that do... you're too young for me? <laughs> no comment. <laughs> Everything Venus said as far as second mortgage defaults, in generally speaking, was exactly correct. So you do need to heed that. Secondly, you do need to find out the status of the first mortgage because if you are going to be bidding on this uh, on the second mortgage uh, position, as it were, in this foreclosure auction, and if you should win it, meaning if you your bid exceeds whatever the second mortgage uh, chooses to bid, if anything, credit bids the amount that they are owed, and if they bid obviously the full amount that they're they're owed, you want to find that out because it would involve you bidding more for you to actually get title to the property. Beyond that, you need to know the status of the first mortgage. So in Michigan, a notice of default would have been filed by the first mortgage holder if they, uh, the, the payments were sufficiently in arrears and they were acting on it. So you need to do a title search and find out the status of the first mortgage. You probably also want to get a copy of uh, whatever information was on public record regarding the first mortgage and any subsequent modifications to give you an idea of what was owed there and potentially the terms. You may, as, a, as an a third-party bidder, you may not be able to get the terms of the first mortgage easily without making contact with the uh, the owner, at least the owner, until Friday. Uh, but if you could at least get an idea of what was um, owed, you and whether it was in default or not, that would give you a long that would get you along the road to protecting yourself in the event that you end up with the property. In the event that you do end up with the with the property, uh, in order to protect your title, because you'd be buying it subject to, as Vina mentioned, to that first mortgage, you would need to be prepared to make the payments to defend your equity. And in this situation, uh, if you're correct in its assessment, depending on what the second is owed and what you have to bid, there may be considerable equity at stake. So I would not say at all that this would be a situation in which you wouldn't want to bid. It may very well be an issue in which you'd want to get involved. And in fact, um, if you were involved in this situation perhaps a little earlier, you could approach that second mortgage holder directly about buying their mortgage as opposed to having to wait and compete with other potential bidders at the foreclosure auction. It's a pretty good bet that the second mortgage holder believes that there is equity in this property. Now, remember that the second mortgage holder probably paid pennies on the dollar for that second. So if, if the second is, let's say the balance is 60000 there's a really good chance that the, that the holder of that mortgage only paid 12000 for it. If so, they bought it in default. So, so when I say there's sufficient equity, I mean versus what they paid for it, not necessarily versus what the entire balance is. But Todd, I think the thing, the, the key decision maker here is for you to remember that if you were to win the bid, what you would have in this property would be the amount of your bid plus the amount of the second or the, of the first mortgage. So you say that the opening bid is half of the ARV, but that the the it's half of the ARV to get into a position where you have bought the property subject to the first mortgage. So you better find out what that loan balance is. Um, just because there's no notice of default doesn't mean it's not in default because it's entirely possible that the the owner is six months behind and the first just didn't bother to file a foreclosure because there's a someone else has already paid for the foreclosure and they're just going to show up and bid their interest. That's true. And then they'll step away. So I think I think 
uh, Matt has it right that if you had gotten involved in this three or four months ago, even a few weeks ago, right, you, potentially, you would have had a lot more time to suss out exactly what was happening and exactly what you might be willing to bid. But unless you can find out whether it is in fact being subject, uh, being foreclosed subject to the first, which I suspect it is, whether the first, what the balance of the first is, what the terms of the first is, whether it's in default and whether any bid you were likely to make plus the balance of the first mortgage was still a good deal. You think it's a good deal at half of the ARV, but is it still a good deal if that first mortgage follows that property into your hands. So see any kind of question that you have here on question and answer week. The number is 877-772-9658. The email address is askvina at gmail.com. Question from Tom. I don't even know how to start with this because his question is what is the process of using land trusts? And I've taught land trusts, I've taught classes about land trusts that take half a day and we have about 12 minutes left here on the program he says i'd like to know the process from start to finish what are the issues that could negatively affect the transaction it seems that a land trust is pretty simple but i must be missing something um i will give you the quick answer to your question tom although it appears that you want the more complex question but i'm also going to make a request of listeners and this is a request whether you happen to be listening to us live on Wednesday or whether you happen to hear this on the podcast later. If there were an online class that you could get maybe through WMKV that was, say, three hours to a whole day, but it was online and it was a super detailed class, what would you want that class to be on? Because land trust is a possibility. <laughs> we could pretty easily spend three or four hours talking about what exactly what land trusts are and how they work and when, when they work and when they don't work and potential problems and all that sort of thing. I've also had the suggestion that people would like to have a class on like um, repair for equity deals. And I've had the suggestion that people wanted a class on, of course, marketing and finding deals. So if you have an idea that's like she can't possibly cover that in a show but it would be really great to have a class on it and i would be willing to pay for that class maybe pay the station a few hundred dollars for the class what would that topic be because we're looking for fundraising ideas for the station uh so send it to askvina at gmail.com and in the in the headline put in the in the subject line put like uh i would like a class on and then you can put as many ideas as you as you like, that you would actually be willing to pay a few hundred dollars for. So, Tom, a land trust is a way of holding title. The trustee is the actual title holder of the property. The trust agreement, which is that, you know, 14 to 20 page long agreement that's all full of all sorts of information, is the the document that governs the holding of the title so if vena jones cox trustee owns your property i i actually as trustee own your property but we've got this big document that says here's the things i can and cannot do with your property right so the process of quote using a land trust means that when you buy a property instead of having it deeded to you or to your llc you have it deeded to the trust 
and you do it by deeding it to the trustee. It's a it's a fairly normal deed. I mean, there's there's some language typically at the top of the deed that says what the rights and responsibilities of the trustee are. It's a, just very brief so that, you know, you can prove the trustee actually has the right to sell the property later. But once that is the once the property's in a land trust, there's not a whole lot different than happen that happens than if it's not in a land trust, except that the trustee has to take all the actions around the trust, right? So, you know, I'm not an attorney. I don't have a PhD in land trusts. You really, before you even decided to put a property in a land trust or not to put a property in a land trust, you ought to talk to an attorney. But it is, it, once you've kind of gone through it a few times, it's not that difficult. Now, what could negatively affect the transaction? That is an interesting question. The biggest negative effect that a land trust is going to have on your transaction is going to happen after the deal is done. And it's going to be that you will have a hard time getting banks to loan you money on that property because they do not like properties in land trusts. It would have to be removed from the land trust probably in order for you to get the property financed. Um, sometimes later on, when the property is being sold again, so you know you you bought it, you put it in land trust, and now you fix it up and say you're selling it to a homeowner who's getting a bank loan. Sometimes the banks find fault with the trust, and they need you to do extra things to, in their opinion, straighten out the title because they don't understand land trust. Most of the problems with land trusts come from the fact that most people don't understand land trust, and that includes, by the way, a lot of attorneys including attorneys who work for banks. So that's the five-minute version of a, if you really wanted to know the process from beginning to end and all the things land trusts could do, would take like three or four hours. But hopefully you found it satisfying. Askvina at gmail.com is the email address to which Tom sent that question. If you have a question, like right now would be a really good time to send it because in another couple of minutes, it will be too late for me to receive it here at the station. A question from Jerome in Nashville. He says, when will the market tank? <laughs> the stock market corrected a few weeks ago with some big drops and has come quite a bit of the way back. The Federal Reserve is putting out the message that higher rates on borrowing will be supported by the market, which means the cost of money will almost surely go up in 2018. Will this harm buyers enough to kill or cool the market? Or are things so good in the U.S. of A. that we should all plan for continued increases in housing prices? And here, let me get out my crystal ball. Mike, where did you put the crystal ball? I've, I've, I don't see it. Where? I, how, am I supposed to, how am I supposed to predict what's going to happen in 2018 without my crystal ball? Typically, at this point in the market cycle, we have what is called a mid-cycle slowdown. And typically, that is caused by a recession, which is typically begun with a stock market correction. The thing that happened with the stock market a few weeks ago, I think it's, it's uh, inaccurate to call it a correction because it was a blip. Right. I mean, I've, uh, most of these things, 
lasts like 18 months and this was this didn't even go 18 days i don't think before the market had recovered most of its value the fact that the fed is going to be raising interest rates this year is it it's important but it's it's not they're not going to be raising it by you know 8 points the way they did in in 1979 so overall i think that we could still be due for a mid-cycle slowdown, which would mean a small decrease in property values for a while, longer days on market. It would mean some better prices for a while. And then if this cycle acts like every other cycle, what will happen after the mid-cycle slowdown is the prices will start going back up again until the next real estate crash, which is probably due in like 2022 or 2023, somewhere in through there. So here's the thing though the market is so constricted right now especially affordable housing that it's hard to see how a half a point raise in the interest rates this year is going to make a, a big dent in the amount of properties they're selling because the reason that there aren't more properties selling is that there aren't more properties to sell in 2000 eight, nine, 10, when properties were dirt cheap and banks were giving away foreclosures. A lot of the affordable housing in the country, which in my market is probably a $120,000 house and in your market is probably a $180,000 house, got purchased by big hedge funds, by Blackstone and American Homes for Rent and those those big companies that own some in some cases over a hundred thousand houses now and they absorbed a lot of the affordable housing stock because it was empty i mean it, no <laughs> it was it was it was being given away because nobody wanted it and now everybody wants it and those companies aren't really selling i mean some of them are selling to their tenants some are selling to their occupants but they don't they don't tend to be selling out in the open market. And so for people who are looking for that kind of affordable house, it's like it's like a starter home, like basic level starter home. There's just, there, there's so little for them to buy. Builders aren't building them. The big hedge funds aren't letting go of them. People who own one and are letting go of them are getting top price and they're getting it in a day. So if a half point increase in interest rates, which of course means an increase in everybody's house payment, came along, it's hard to picture that it would really slow the market down a lot because there's just not enough on the market. Now, in the million-dollar houses, will that have an effect? Yeah. I mean, million-dollar houses, at least in our area, are already kind of hard to sell. But a half point isn't going to cool the market. It's sure not going to kill it. The, the expected actual drop in the stock market could cool it drastically for about 18 months but we're not we're not really back to 2006 so it'll cool it for 18 months and then the price will go back up at least if the cycle acts like every other cycle so thank you for your question jerome and that wraps up another episode of real life real estate investing we will be back next week with more information to put you on the path to financial independence through real estate investing until then happy investing 